You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. And we're live. Hey, people, how are you? Welcome to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, uh, recorded live as always every Tuesday normally on the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel. My name is Matt Phillips, creative runcheclive.com, and we are streaming uh, to YouTube and also live to the Sports Therapy Association open Facebook group. And we might keep doing that because some people do prefer to join via Facebook than YouTube. But if you do join uh, via the Facebook group, then you do need to, if you want to leave comments and questions for our guests, then you do need to click a little link um, just to satisfy Facebook um, and their privacy rules. Um, there is the link inside the comments on the original post, but I'll also put it up here at the bottom of the screen so you can see that. Um, but if you want to just copy and paste it, then go to the original com uh, comments on the post and you'll see it. It just means that you're giving your permission for your photo to come up when you ask a question. Otherwise, you just see Facebook user. So there we go. If you're on YouTube, don't worry. YouTube are far less stringent and you can just put whatever you like unless you're Russell Brand. Right. So... We are continuing our countdown to Therapy Expo 2023, which is happening at the NEC Birmingham this November, the 22nd and the 23rd. Uh, very exciting for soft tissue therapists. Um, if you have never been before, then there's a nice, interesting uh, article in the Sports Therapy Association newsletter that came out recently. Thanks, Jake, for that, which explains what it's all about. Or you can just tune in and we'll be talking about Therapy Expo and the benefits for soft tissue therapists to visit it. Uh, fantastic CPD. And the STA Update Theatre, which is within the Therapy Expo, is going to be brimming full to the brim with speakers over the two days. Um, in the last episode, episode 170, 166, my guest was Dr. Lucy Williamson, um, award-winning nutritionist and founder of the Gut Health Project. If you didn't manage to listen to that, then that's on YouTube if you want to watch it and also on all popular podcast apps. Um, Dr. Lucy Williamson is going to be opening up day one. A therapy expo in the STA theatre at 9.15 a.m. Um, it'd be lovely to see you there with coffee in hand to start the whole event um, in the STA theatre. And her presentation is going to be personalised nutrition for the future, gut microbiome. If you're interested in that, you want to hear more, then uh, listen to last week's um, podcast, which is episode 166. Tonight, actually, just by coincidence, the my um, guest tonight is actually guest number two, in no particular order, but guest number two on the Wednesday at Therapy Expo. It's Lucy Gilbanks, ex-international athlete and researcher with two medical publications focusing on the effects of relative energy deficiency in sport, commonly known as REDS, red hyphen S, which I imagine most of you are probably familiar with. Um, as I say, Lucy Gilbanks is going to be in the STA Theatre at 10 a.m. on day one of Therapy Expo. Presenting Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, What Therapists Need to Know. So it's going to be a real excellent chance for, we say therapist because it could be sports therapist, it could be sports massage therapist, it could be a sports rehabber. Everybody is going to see, particularly if they're athletes competing, um, potential risks for relative energy deficiency, um, which Lisa is going to go into. Um, so you can spot things, know what to do if you do suspect, and just use the time you spend with them to to give them the best service possible. So join us in the STA Theatre. But if you're here listening to the podcast, then even better, because now we're going to bring up Lucy Gilbanks. You're listening to the Sports Therapy 
Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Hey Lucy, how are you doing? Hello, Jessica, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, um, I should actually say now, because we've been chatting a bit <laughs> off air, there seems to be a few gremlins in the system. So if you're listening to, if you're listening live, um, then uh and suddenly one of us disappears don't worry we'll just refresh and we'll come back. <laughs> if you listen to the podcast then i will have edited out all of the uh, mistakes so it should be fluid and lovely so thank you very much for coming back lucy you were with us um how long ago was it now i can't remember i think it was episode three yeah no thank you for having me thank you for having me back it was um an amazing episode we got some lovely feedback because it's as we're probably going to hear about now it's such a personal story and again you're a classic example of somebody who's been through a certain situation which affected your life and those around you and now you want to help educate mm. therapists and and other uh, sports people to avoid potentially you know give support where you want mm-hmm. to give support yeah so maybe for people who haven't listened to 153 shame yeah. on you if you haven't listened yet <laughs> could you give us a little um bit about your history and how you got into specializing in this area yeah, so I first came across the term relative energy deficiency in sport um, when I was actually looking for what I should do my dissertation on at uni. Um, so we were just kind of, I was just trawling the internet, looking for things of what I should be doing my dissertation on, came across something called the female athlete triad. And as I was looking through symptoms and kind of the diagnostics of this, I was kind of thinking, mm, I tick a lot of these boxes myself. I actually have quite a lot of these symptoms myself. So started looking into the female athlete triad and that was what I initially did my dissertation on in my undergrad. Um, was on the female athlete triad um, and before this time I'd never heard of the female athlete triad nor red eggs before um, I'd been at that point probably rowing for 10 ish years maybe um, and that was my first year of doing anything sort of internationally um, within rowing um, and so I'd, I'd rowed at a high, high level and never heard about any of these symptoms and never heard about what you should do if you have any of these symptoms and then as I started discussing it more with some of my teammates realized that actually a lot of them also had a lot of these symptoms and as I was doing my dissertation and I came across more research about red s I then decided actually this is something I really want to know a little bit more about and research out because the more I was talking to colleagues so I was I was trained to be a physiotherapist at the time the more I was talking to colleagues and peers the, re- the more I realized none of them really knew about it including some lecturers and then as I started talking more about these symptoms to my um, friends who are like my the athletes they also had never heard of this before and I was like there's a there's a bit of a problem here is that a lot of us are having these symptoms and a lot of us know these symptoms are around but don't really realize the ins and outs of what they're doing to our body or how this could be affecting us long term so then I went on to do my master's um, at Oxford University on uh, relative energy deficiency in sport so I was kind of specializing in on that and I was looking at the knowledge and awareness that physiotherapists have uh, which was pretty nil um, and the how this then can affect lightweight rowers and look specifically at lightweight rowers because that was the sport that I did. So rowing in itself, you could do heavyweight or lightweight rowing. If you're a lightweight rower, you have to make weight. So what that means is that you weigh in two hours before in an event. Um, so it's different to boxing. You don't weigh in the day before. You don't really have much time to fuel up or hydrate. You weigh in two hours before your race and you have to so for international weigh in for women, it's 57 zero kilos and for men, it's 70 kilos. Um, and that's the crew average. So individually, the crew, indiv- that's what the crew average has to be. So individually, you could be 59 kilos as a woman or you could be 72 kilos as a man. So that means that some people can end up taking weight for others. So even though I was quite light and already fit under that 57, I would often go a little bit lighter to, to help out some of my friends so that we could, as a crew average, make weight. Um, so 
that obviously meant that we were dieting, we were restricting our food intake, uh, we were restricting when we eat, we were training two, three times a day, definitely three times as we were coming closer into competition. So we were using a lot of fuel throughout the day and we weren't necessarily getting in the right nutrition for this. And then what that caused was myself and a lot of my friends suffered with amenorrhea, so lack of or no period at all, uh, so irregular periods or none at all. Um, I did have friends who ended up having low bone density that prevent that starts off at being like stress fractures, but actually then became at, at a young age, they were being diagnosed with osteoporosis, so having like brittle bones, which essentially is something that usually is considered as, as an older person's uh, disease, if you, if you like. But uh, we, a lot of my friends were kind of suffering with these symptoms quite early on. So I first came about it from a personal point of view. Um, and then it definitely became a sparked interest of mine to realize that this isn't right that so many people are within this sport I've been in this sport myself for many years never heard of it or or what to do if you get any of these symptoms so it then has become like a real passion of mine to actually share the knowledge and awareness because a lot of it is out there but it's not necessarily accessible to everyone unless you're kind of in the academic world and you kind of have access to papers and things it's not a readily sourced available thing that people talk about within grassroots sports or even with with even within like elite sports, it's not something that's commonly discussed very often. Um, thankfully, now there's a little bit more knowledge and awareness. And even since our talk, I've had people that, that it's been started to be incorporated in more uh, sporting situations, particularly in the rowing world. Um, so it's good that the knowledge and awareness is starting to increase. But relative energy deficiency in sports in itself is a progression from the female athlete triad. The female athlete triad initially was found to be only something that women suffered with. It was kind of established in the late 1990s, which is pretty late in terms of how long these symptoms will have been going on for. And essentially, the female triad looked at a triad of symptoms, which was um, not having a period, essentially, or irregular periods, not eating enough for how much you're training, and that then causing low bone density. Um, so low energy availability, low bone density, and amenorrhea. Obviously, then the research has developed since then, and people have actually realized that it's not just women who can suffer with these symptoms. It could be men, and actually men are, are at a slight disadvantage because they don't have the early warning signal of their period not being present. Um, so they then often come to clinics or start talking about some of these symptoms when they've actually got stress fractures or whether when they've got low bone density rather than it just being something hormonal that the body's not quite sorting out at this moment in time but that was that was only recently been established in sort of 2014 as well so it's very very new in terms of people talking about this but thankfully now a little bit more research has been done about it and people are starting to talk about it more but it isn't a sport it isn't something that whilst it's considered relative energy deficiency in sports you don't have to be a sports person you could be someone who goes to the gym regularly you could be you know people kind of have this umbrella term for athletes that you have to be training three four times a day and working towards a specific sporting goal but you could just be someone who regularly goes to the gym you you then you still come under a sports athlete bracket and you may not be getting in enough fuel for how much you're actually training you know if you're on a fetal day if you've got a busy job you're using a lot of fuel um even if it's not specific training um so it's it's something that can that any of us can suffer with man woman young old sports non-sports anyone could suffer with these symptoms and even if you're if you're a lightweight athlete so you have to make weight for a sport there's an, an increased tendency for this to be a, of an occurrence because you have that added pressure to to make weight for your sports but there could be 
other aspects that make you more at risk for this that used to be like an old consideration that the lighter you are the faster you are so that put a pre- that put an emphasis on people wanting to lose weight so that they were quicker at their sport and obviously that's now found to not be the case but some of these kind of ideas are still present within older coaches or within sort of myth busting of of sports in general so it really can be anyone that suffers with the, with these symptoms um, and it is it's considered a syndrome so it's not considered you know a linear tendonitis that there's a specific protocol that you should follow everyone is different and everyone should be treated different differently um, because of the symptoms that they present and the severity symptoms that they present um, but the main difference that sort of we would see as therapists is that you're not necessarily going to see people within a clinician cl- clinical eating disorder category they may just have disordered eating patterns that are causing these low that are causing the low energy availability and the the effects to their organs inside what the main thing that i found from my research is that there was a lot of research already done in terms of how it can affect your body physically uh, but not necessarily how much that it, and, and some on how it can affect you mentally but not necessarily on how that can affect you psychosocially and the problem with that is that that can have such a long-term co- effect because we found that people were struggling with relationships struggling with uh with as well as the physical and um mental um side of their symptoms they were struggling with their life outside of their sports so struggling to concentrate in schools struggling to concentrate at work struggling with relationships with boss with friends with family with friends and obviously long term that could then affect their longevity within a job or it could affect the longevity within their relationship it can put strain on family parents child relationships so it's really something that we need to be trying to address early on so that this doesn't become a long-term implication right I need to unpack that now. Oh, no, sorry. Just, yep, that's all right. I saw it out of my head now. It was only 11 minutes. That's great. No, there's so much you know because it shows and your passion is, is beautiful about the subject. Obviously, now you've explained it's something, it's a place where you've come from with lightweight rowing. And that's probably, I mean, that this, like you explained, you, you have to make weight, is it two hours before the event? Mm-hmm. So it's pretty extreme. It, like you said, it's not like boxing where at least, I mean, mm-hmm. that's terrible as well in some boxes. Yeah. It? But it is the kind of extreme, but you then followed it up with saying that it can happen to many, many people, even people who don't do sport. And this yeah. is the interesting thing, because your presentation um, in Therapy Expo is going to be what therapists do need to know. And I think that's I think to start off with what I want to talk about is is there's probably a tendency for some massage therapists. I say massage therapists because there's a tendency amongst massage therapists to think, oh, we don't have to worry about that sort of thing, especially if there's an acronym. It's like, mm. oh, leave that to the physios. Mm. Red hyphen S, that sounds really complicated. I'm not allowed to deal with that. I'm not allowed to ask questions. And there's, I think the fear of doing something wrong or saying mm-hmm. the wrong thing becomes just, right, I'm not even going to look into that or pass them on. But I think what we, the message I got from talking to you last time was, some of the symptoms you mentioned, they're probably going to want to come for an hour, lie down on a couch and just feel good mm-hmm. and walk out feeling mm-hmm. like the weight is off their shoulders. So there's an awful lot that massage therapists can do to help these people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think particularly, you know, especially if, if, if patients and clients are coming for an hour session, that's a really long time for you as a therapist to actually be allowing them the chance to talk and you have the chance to listen to some of the symptoms. So a lot of what we might talk about in um, my presentation is like what you can ask and things, but it's also, it's not just about what you can ask the patient. It's also what you can gain from them talking and having an hour with a patient or with a, with a client 
you're going to get a lot more rapport with a patient and especially through the through the actual fact that you're touching the patient and they've built that rapport to actually build they can trust you they're going to trust you to talk about other things that they may not feel comfortable to trust to talk about their coach or to, to, to the doctor because they're kind of in and out in 10 minutes they've only got a quick 10 minute to ask about one condition it might not give them the chance to kind of delve as deep as they may end up actually talking to you even it might just be subconscious it might not be a conscious decision that they are openly admitting some of these symptoms but they might just kind of say it in passing comment that they haven't had their period for a while or you know they're really struggling with reoccurring injury and illnesses and just noting some of these things in your head you can then come back to it at a later date or refer on if needed to um, but I think that it's definitely being a massage therapist or generally working with them with them in a sporting environment. You often do have that first port of call. They may have gone to you before they've gone to someone else as well. They might not recognize it as being an injury or to being an issue. You know, even when I had some of these symptoms, I don't really care that I didn't have a period for a year. It was it was quite helpful for my sport and then I didn't have to worry about that. So it's not something that people always register as being a problem, but they may end up start talking to you about some of these things just because they have that rapport, they have that one-to-one connection. They might have seen you for many years or many weeks. They might have, you know, you just might have a different relationship with them to someone who they see as in more of a clinical setting where they feel like quite nervous to talk about situations and what that can kind of lead on to. It's more of a, it's usually more of a relaxed environment where you actually might be the first port of call of this person actually opening up about it. And as soon as they open up about it, it's not that you need to suddenly jump on them and start delving into and diagnosing them with reds. It's it's using that as an opportunity to then to kind of break down that barrier and discuss a little bit further and kind of maybe prompt them to to, to talk to someone else about this. If you don't feel comfortable, the, the key thing with this as well is that whilst we need to be aware of these knowledge and symptoms, you don't need to know everything. And if you don't feel comfortable talking to a talking to the patient about this, if you recognise the symptom that they've just they've discussed, that's great. That's the best thing that you could do for them. You can then refer them on if you need to. You don't feel like you need to take the weight of their life onto you. You can refer on if you need to. Um, but just making them aware that they actually did mention that can be quite important and quite empowering for the clinic for the clients or for the patients um, themselves as well. And also just. You know, if, if they're booked in regularly with you and it's a routine thing, just monitor these symptoms because obviously everyone's different. Sometimes people go through waves of cycles with different things. So just monitor these symptoms. If you know that they're booked in regularly, note it down as something in your notes, then just come back and see if they talk about it the next time um, so that you can delve into it a little bit deeper and, and like I say, refer on if if required. Uh, but I think as as a therapist, you're more likely to have that one to one rapport and also more likely to see them in the earlier stages, which is when it's so crucial that we can actually try and nip this in the bud before it becomes an ongoing issue, before they actually feel that they need to go to a clinical setting because they might not feel that the symptoms of a reoccurring injury is a doctor's problem. So it's it, it, it's a really important and empowering position that you're in to actually have that long time an hour is, is a really long time for someone to actually open up about themselves um so i just use that to your advantage and make sure that you're you're allowing that space to do so it's it's important to ask questions but it's equally as important to to listen um and to hear what they're saying brilliant we like that we like every time we hear that bells ring um yeah two ears one mouth sort of thing but that's yeah what you said is so true and 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 I think that should empower massage therapists. And really, it's the future business model. I always think like um, like in Canada, for example, and probably some other places, massage can be used as, as insurance. Insurance companies will pay for it because mm-hmm. they – it's not it's there's a there's a separation between the kind of spa clinic massage which mm-hmm. is lovely and, and, and great yeah. but then the kind of more leaning towards part of healthcare massage mm-hmm. 
because of this reason, I think. And if if massage therapists out there start asking these questions and and forming a really important part of sign signposting people to go and see specialists, that's that could be a really important yeah. part of the, of the chain of of care, couldn't it? Just especially especially if these if if they like with reds athletes as being an athlete if they are an athlete like i said it can come from non-athletes so if they're an athlete they're going to want to have the extra two percent with everything they're going to want to be making sure their nutrition's on point they're going to want to make sure they're sleeping on point so massage will probably become into part of their training package and part of their sort of wellness management and looking after them it, it might be considered more holistically but looking after them less sort of clinical in terms of their routine rehab or their routine uh, training it's just something they do to kind of make themselves feel good after after training and kind of tick everything over which is why you probably will see them more often um and so I, I do think it's really really important that you just are able to recognize these symptoms and like you say you, you can use this to empower your situation to actually have to, so that everyone knows the importance of your situation and the importance of your job role um, and how you can be of value to that to the wider healthcare. You know, we're all sort of an MDT. It can be it, even if we all work individually, everyone can kind of refer in and out. And you know, it's so important that we have um, massage therapists for this reason because you are touching the patient. You are going to have that one-to-one connection. The the key thing that that to, to note as well though is that you're not necessarily going to see red S on a patient or reds on a patient. You're not they're not necessarily going to look a certain way, have a certain build to them. It's it's not as physical as some sort of eating disorders may typically present. Um, so it's not just how the patient looks as they walk in. It's it's, you know, seeing how their muscles feel as well. You know, if there's a lot of reoccurring tightness and a lot of reoccurring tension. That could be an underlying situation for something going on. It could be an indication that the tissue is not quite healing. So it doesn't necessarily be, it's not necessarily how they present and how they sit down in your clinic to you. It could also be how they are on the massage bed. Um, That's a really good point. And actually, I had an email, thanks to a couple of photos I shared with your permission last time. One of the things which really um, caused a couple of emails coming in was when they realized that somebody who looks fit, I think I said on the actual um, podcast last time ripped I think is the word I used. <laughs> they come in looking like you know male or female mountain and it's and actually they could still be suffering from reds and we got a couple mm-hmm. of emails saying oh that was so so enlightening because you always expect them to be frail and yeah. kind of like delicate so let's just bring those photos up again shall we <laughs> so <laughs> a little bit of reading back for you uh, people listen to the podcast you can't see these photos but if you want to see them then just pop along to YouTube Sports Therapy Association channel and you'll see them so this is there's two pictures this is just you talk us through this gives people a nice idea of what lightweight rowing looks like guess what it's people in a row, rowing boat but where was yeah. this this is your goal this, for the... at, this was at buck so this is um british university college sports what most university um universities train towards uh, every year so this was our box regatta so we have a box head event and we have a box regatta event so this when i was at nottingham university and we we won in that year we won in the uh, lightweight four the lightweight do- um quad and then we got a silver i think in the double um so we did quite well overall in the box leagues that's kind of like your national university league um and before both before each of these races so it was a three-day event and you had to weigh in every morning so it wasn't just that we had to make weights on the friday we had to make one on friday saturday sunday you only weigh in once for the day so once you have weighed in you, you're confirmed you're kind of good to go for that day so we did have three races each day as well so we were racing time trial in the morning you'd have a semi-final then you'd have a final in the afternoon so it's a lot of racing over the weekend and because we had to make weight for each of these events you know the uh, nutrition sometimes did lack and 
one of my friends um, in that picture, she would be, you know, literally just having chocolate milk for the day. And that was it, just to make sure that she made weight for the next day. And it was less about the fueling for that day. And it was more about making it through. And something that's quite important to know is that even though we did so well in some of these events, we didn't have periods. We, you know, there were things going on internally that our body was saying that wasn't happy. And there was things weren't ticking along how they should be. Um, so in this picture again, so we were, this was our varsity. So we, this was Nottingham University against Nottingham Trent. Um, so we'd want, you know, we'd done really, really well. Um, we all look very physical. Um, yeah. If you're listening to the podcast, I mean, we've got 12 double bicep poses here going <laughs> yeah. on and, and we've got Lucy in the middle with like, what can I only describe as at least an eight pack. And it just looks, I mean, this was, this was the photo that generated the emails last time. You all look super fit. If, if yeah. any of you walked in to see a therapist, the last thing I would think is that you had some kind of energy deficit yeah. thing going on. You don't it looked like the opposite. A you know? yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. But like you're saying, people in the last photo, maybe in this one, were actually struggling. And, yeah. and in your studies, it was so fascinating hearing when you did um, do telephone calls with past athletes about mm-hmm. how much people were scarily suffering in their in their personal life. Yeah, the problem is the low energy availability doesn't attribute to how you look physically. It's not that you're like, say, super frail or, or, you know, it's not an obvious symptom from the outside because it's what's going on internally. And it's similar to kind of like your fight or flight response. We were still excelling in our sport and still doing well in our sports, but it was kind of like the fight or flight system that our body recognized that it needed to send the right amount of signals to the muscles so that we were able to perform for the sport. But it started switching off some of the other signals to our internal organs, like our reproductive organs and, and systems like that. So it's kind of like similar to like your phone, like when your phone goes on low power mode, once you click low power mode, your data will save to like WhatsApp if that's what you use regularly and kind of turn off the data to Instagram if you're not using that as regularly and it will kind of filter it to what you're using most often. And that's similar to what happens in our bodies. You know, some patients, some athletes may be excelling in their sport and that's often the hardest time is that they might be world champion and they might be doing the best thing ever. And so in terms of on paper, they're the best athlete, they're the healthiest they could ever be. But actually, internally, things might their body might have gone into low power mode. They might have gone into that fight or flight response. They might be excelling in their sports, but things might not be excelling outside of sports. Um, so it's just key to know that it's it's not something physical. And like, yeah, I did have a six pack. I had an eight pack at the time, but it didn't mean that I was physically healthy. It's that that wasn't necessarily what my body should have been like at the time because I didn't have a period at that point. So, you know, that was an, an obvious early warning sign. That I didn't realise it was an obvious early warning sign that my body was not quite ticking along how it should be. And also, I guess it's also in the heat of the moment and you're all there and you're feeling great and the adrenaline and everything. And you all it's when that person goes by themselves, when all that's over yeah. and you're trying to go home and you're realizing you're not meeting up with any of your friends maybe yeah. or you're not getting on with your family yeah. and you're and or maybe you're you know you're being sick after you're eating because you're worrying that it's not quite over yet yeah. and then you go to the therapist and it's like i mean when when i think you mentioned it some of the symptoms imagine anyone out there who's a let's say massage therapist or a sports therapist who does some massage and stuff someone comes in and they are complaining um about being really tired and you think oh yeah that's because you know you're you know an athlete competing that's normal um, mm-hmm. And then maybe they might say, um, oh, I'm finding it a bit difficult to recover. And you say, oh, you're just overtraining a little mm-hmm. bit. But unless you ask the extra questions like, have you got any menstrual dysfunction or are you losing any muscle recently or something, then you would never know, would you? This person actually needs professional help from yeah. a specialist. 
It's really, it's it's really important to note that these symptoms, like even like what we, what we were just talking about, the uh, psychosocial aspect, that's something you can't see physically, and it's not something that you're automatically going to ask a patient as well. So it's that is something that you'll only you're only going to find those questions out with someone if you have that rapport with them, and if you've got that long that long appointment time to actually discuss some of these things. So because it's, it's not going to be the first thing they walk in with if they're coming to a, any sort of therapist, myself including being a physio, they're not going to suddenly walk in and say, "Oh, I'm struggling concentrating at school." It's not the the first thing that because that's not what they associate being our jobs as being to to do to talk about. Um, so that type of conversation would just come up with when you're discussing you know school life, work life balance with them. Um, but it's really important that we do note that it's not just the physical and um, the psychological symptoms within these patients. It's the psychosocial aspect as well, that long term, they could be more detrimental if we don't enable people to to look at these symptoms. Because if someone's losing their job over not concentrating and not then performing in their work, but they're still doing great in their sport. Great. That's fantastic about their sports. But if they've not got an income in, they might not be able to fund that sport. So it does have such a knock on effect. The problem like with with my own family, for example, was that. My parents were saying to me that I had like calorie Asperger's, that that I was like obsessed with telling them what was in the calories to different things. And it was putting a strain on, you know, me, me and my family had the best relationship. We we're all so super close, but it was putting a strain on our family relationship because my parents were trying to sit me down and say, like, this is becoming a problem. And I was like, you don't understand. I'm an athlete. I'm not I don't think I look fat. It's nothing to do with how I look. It's nothing to do with how I feel. I'm doing this for my sports. I'm healthy. You don't understand. And that was putting a strain on our family relationship because my parents, because my parents would have like, a, for example, on a Saturday night, they wanted to have a takeaway when I was home from week from from uni. And I would say, no, I cannot eat that. I have to have I'd go and make myself like a quinoa salad bowl or whatever, because I was so obsessed with making sure that I had little calories for that day. And I was so obsessed with not eating anything out of a can. Everything had to be homemade, which is lovely. Um, but it like I wouldn't even have like tomatoes out of a can or anything like everything. I wanted it to be pure. Um, and so it does re- it does then cause it can cause disordered eating and then left to it, it could cause eating disorders in itself. But it could stem initially from, like we're saying, red S, but also that strain on relationship at home. Um, thankfully, obviously, my family and I have a really close relationship. We were able to sort it out. But some people may not be in that situation and it could cause a long pro- a long term problem for some of these people. So um, if if so you do in that time, problem. I'm interested during that time, did you? Like you said, for example, um, no periods for a year. During that time, was that challenged at all by any GPs or any mm-hmm. physicians or, or any – just didn't happen? No. So unfortunately for myself, when I the only time I did mention it to a GP was at the university. And I think I met, mentioned it in a passing comment when I was there for something else. And they then said to me about going on the pill. And that was – the response to it and that unfortunately is a lot is a common response to to when girls say that they're struggling with periods or irregular periods or heavy periods but the answer from the g a lot of gps not all but a lot can often be go on the pill now unfortunately going on the pill doesn't solve the problem it having go be having a, a bleed on the pill is a withdrawal bleed from the pill it's not actually a period so you're still masking the problem you're just putting a plaster over the the issue and someone may still bleed and think they've got the period but actually just being on the pill and having that withdrawal bleed isn't a period so they may still have these fundamental issues going on and these fundamental psychological, psychosocial, physical problems. And at the moment, we're just masking it with being on the pill. Um, so that was the only time I ever brought it up. But no coach ever asked me about it. And I think that it's really important and really empowering for coaches, for therapists, but to just be a normal just topic of conversation. You know, we're not like back in the day where things people were kind of nervous to talk about these types of things. It's something that we should openly be able to discuss and, and ask patients, athletes, 
coaches be able to talk to athletes about it and without feeling nervous or ashamed or embarrassed about it because it's it's a really great indicator for girls like i say we've got one up on boys actually having this because if if that system is not functioning as it should it's an early warning indicator that things aren't quite moving how they should do in the background um that reminds me just remind me of the wonderful michelle lyons who's going to be um, speaking at sta theater as well and is also really keen to speak to you um she was talking about how there needs to be a re-education where menstruation is seen as the power instead mm-hmm. of the curse. Mm-hmm. Actually, if you if tip it on its head, you if you time things properly, you can yeah. turn this into your favor yeah. and actually get perfect training. And like when you said that we've got one up on the boys, yeah. that's, whereas at the moment I get the impression it is seen still as the curse. Yeah. You know, where yeah. it's like, oh, I can't do this and can't do that. So. And there are, there are certain cycles within girls that training in your follicular phase or your teal phase will affect your recovery. And you, you have different muscle in that time because of your estrogen levels. So it, 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 depending on the time of the month, it can increase your risk of injury. It can increase your risk of illness and it can re- it reduce your recovery rate. So as therapists, it's good to know this because it might then change how you what, what type, if you're giving exercises to people, it might kind of change what type of exercise you give them and when. Um, and if it by having these conversations with them, it also makes them understand the importance of recognizing their own uh, their own sort of period cycle so that they know that they may not feel great on a race day, but if or, or, or a competition day, but they can do things to kind of support that by maybe not tra- not doing a heavy strength training that uh, that week and doing more stretching because actually that's what their body needs. So it's really important as, as girls to, to like say empower this conversation so that we can talk about luteal phase, follicular phase, and understanding how that can stimulate your training and how that can be a foundation to our recovery with patients um, and how we can make sure that we're best looking after our system what in, in a whole. Um, so it's, yeah, it's really important that we break that stigma. And in your experience, like, so for you, it was like about four or five years ago when you were competing and this yeah. was going on. Have, if you, you I mean, you're, you're in contact. I think you work closely with quite a lot of clubs and things. Yeah. Has it changed a little bit? Or are you still seeing kind of younger versions of you going through the same thing because they're not being supported by coaches or GPs? Or Unfortunately, there is still a common theme that we, I do get a lot of people in with these early warning signals, but um, parents don't realise that this is a problem and they don't also realise the importance of, like, it, especially, like, this time of year for us going back into September is where we get so many kids in with injuries because they've, they've not done much over summer they might have been on holiday for four weeks or whatever six weeks um they've been into different they might have been on a few like football camps or different things over summer but they've not really trained consistently then as soon as they've gone back in September they've gone back to cricket hockey dance swimming netball like so much in one week and so much in one day and they're not necessarily getting in the fuel they need in between that They've not necessarily upped how much protein they're having. They've not necessarily taken into effect, taken into consideration like the age of the child as well. So how much they're growing in that time, the importance of sleep and hydration, nutrition. Um, and so we see a lot of patients during this time, unfortunately, that do have stress fracture injuries, that do have low energy availability, just because they suddenly had a peak and a spike in in their load of activity. And it's also making the parents aware that, you know, as adults, we wouldn't ex- we wouldn't expect ourselves to run a marathon after no training over summer. And then suddenly three weeks into September, you're running a marathon. You'd say no, that's ridiculous. But the, the load that's put on these bodies uh, as an adolescent or even younger um, is essentially the same as us doing a marathon without any training. You know, you're suddenly putting yourself through loads of um, stress during the day, carrying school bags, carrying heavy rucksacks. 
um you burning a lot of fuel throughout the day and then also going from swimming hockey netball whatever it is throughout the day and not necessarily getting in the fuel so it's important that we that we are able to talk to these um patients parents as well about educating them on the importance of fuel and nutrition in and around their sports and making sure that they use the window of opportunity after sport to get in pit protein to get in fuel that they may have been burning throughout that day to reduce the risk of injury and illness because we we do still get a lot of um i do still get a lot of patients with reds whether it's been a diagnosis or whether they've kind of started off with early warning signs often i get a lot of patients coming in with an injury um but then as we discuss a little bit further the, the injury is stemming from something more whole like red s um and i think it's also important whilst talking about uh, red s in itself is that it's it, that there is the which i will talk about more in my presentation but there is the reds cat tool which is, it was published by Margot Mountjoy a few years ago. Um, and that is a tool for clinicians. It's a tool for coaches. It's a tool for parents. You don't have to be um, a physiotherapist or a doctor or someone with um, a medical degree as such to actually use this as a tool. And it's it's essentially to know when your athlete or when your patient is ready and fit to return back to sports. And it's basically a checklist. Um, it's giving you like a traffic light system you don't have to be anyone with any any red specific qualification to use it's quite self-explanatory and you can just follow that to make sure that you're guiding your patients you could give it to them if you don't feel comfortable talking to them about it you could give it to them and they can make the assessment if they wanted to it's better if it's guided from someone else because there might be a bit of subjective bias going in if it was left to the athlete themselves um but it is something that anyone can use and a master therapist could also use it it doesn't have to be someone who has a specific reds qualification or has done specific reds research um, so I think that's also important to know is that with all, all these patients that we do get in is that that's a tool that I use um, to make sure that we are looking at these patients holistically and looking at their safe return to sport and guiding them in the effective way. And even if you're not necessarily establishing a rehab program for a patient, if you are purely seeing them for a massage, if you bring this as a topic of awareness to them, they can then take that to their coach and their coach can use Brilliant. it with them. So that's something you can download. Well, we can put a link for that in the notes. Come, it's something yeah. very available. And oh, wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. you didn't tell me about that last episode, did you? <laughs> Holding something back? No, I forgot to mention it, and that's why I thought <laughs> I need great. to make sure I mention it because I end up waffling about red a lot because I end up just talking a lot about it, and I need to make sure I mention points. <laughs> this is the thing. There's so much we could talk about, but no, this is this is amazing. It's, I think, also in the back of my mind, I think it's, I think we've shown now that potentially a lot we haven't even touched on the guys yet um and, and that's something well 838 we could pick up with <laughs> later on but even if we just look at the females at the moment coming through the door i'm hoping that therapists of all different types whether it's massage or sports therapy or sports rehab will realize that maybe they've missed some of these and we've got yeah. these people coming they haven't asked the right questions they've made that misassumption this person looks really ripped and healthy but they mm -hmm. haven't asked this the, the questions about the nutrition and how they feel and what mm -hmm. their relationships are like and all that sort of stuff so but then i think it's interesting as well and you mentioned this last time um and it had quite an impact on me about dividing um these people up um into accidental and intentional we've mm -hmm. sort of mentioned it a little bit but could you yeah how what does that category mean yeah so intentional unintentional weight loss is essentially and, and this could be someone who's intentionally or unintentionally fueling themselves for their sport so essentially intentional weight loss is like for myself i was trying to lose weight in order to make weight for my race so that could be someone who is a jockey who's trying to make weight a boxer who's trying to make weight lightweight rower for example that there are lots of different sports that there is a weight element to their sports so in, in which case they will be they may be purposefully under fueling themselves 
or underfueling their training, um, particularly building into that day in which they need to rate in, in, until they need to make that weight. Um, they may also be doing other types of uh, weight loss, like colonic irrigation, which is sometimes encouraged by sports. So essentially flushing everything out, going for sweat baths, sweat saunas, really just trying to get rid of any water weight. So that's real intentional weight loss, a real intentional underfueling. Um, but that, like I say, even when I was going through that sort of intentional weight loss, didn't see it as a problem because for me, I was doing it for sport. I wasn't doing it for how I looked or how I felt. So for me, it felt healthy, not healthy. Um, the unintentional weight loss or the unintentional un underfueling is often that young athlete or young patient who is going from sport to sport to sport who doesn't necessarily realize that they've actually had a very light breakfast that day they might have just had a banana because they were late getting up for school and then they went to school all day they've been on their feet all day they've, they've already had a rounders at lunchtime they've been out playing football in the break time and then they've got swimming after school and then they go straight from swimming to hockey and they've actually only had a sandwich for lunch, a banana for breakfast, and then they're going to go home and have a chicken curry, for example. And actually, they've not really got much fuel in throughout that day, but they've burnt a lot of fuel. And that can cause unintentional weight loss or unintentional underfueling. So it's not necessarily that they're doing, doing it for a sport, but just because of time or just because of where they're training, they may be unintentionally underfueling themselves. So it's it's not, like I said, that's why it's not always the specific athlete that you think about it's more about what they're doing and it's it, I often literally break it down with them like a diary like when, when just taking notes and things just say so what do you get up to take me through your week what do you usually do during the week and just get them to have it have a bit of a chat about some Monday they do this and Tuesday they do this and you can often see a bit of a theme coming into and obviously depending on their age if they're 15 they might be going through GCSEs if that their age will then determine kind of what they're, they're also doing during sports and after them talk towards them so what also do you do about what, what are you doing during PE and then they talk about all the different sports that are doing in PE, which is which is great. But then they're not actually getting in any fuel in between that. And they don't really like school dinners or anything. So they, they have a small they have a small dinner um, at lunch. So it's it's then making them and the parents aware that that we need to look at this and potentially taking in smoothies, taking in extra chicken, right? Chicken and rice bowls, I mean, just getting in protein and, and fuel in other ways throughout the day to make sure that we're actually fueling ourselves for all these sports and for all this this energy that you're using throughout the day so it's important to recognize that this uh, intentional like say trying to make weight for a sport or trying to lose weight for a sport or unintentional which is essentially training a lot without realizing you're not getting in enough fuel for how much you're, you're actually training or exercising and it, it doesn't have to be specific training as exercising walking throughout school is still a form of actually burning fuel and still a form of actually activating all your muscles um so yeah Excellent. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's really useful for therapists to bear that in mind um, when they're kind of like categorizing potential yeah, people. Yeah, and, and, it can and be that's when, sport, like you say. Yeah, and so that's when suddenly it, the penny drops, and you could think, right, this low energy might be a sign of that. You also mentioned that um, you're losing maybe muscle, um, inability to recover. Then the the, the um, period question might come out again. That might mm -hmm. reveal itself. Um, and also re-injury, stress fractures. Mm -hmm. So, so once what ha let's imagine a massage therapist has identified this. Mm -hmm. They had a real big heart to heart. Mm -hmm. And massage therapists generally, when I train massage therapists, when I used to, we we let them know there's probably going to be some crying involved because it yeah. does happen. You yeah. know, people do once they release that that holding that system and they let yeah. it go. 
you get people crying and, and i've had some incredible admissions from from clients who have talked about their family situation relationships mm-hmm. children uh, deaths mm-hmm. all these sort of things simply because they've had a massage and they just yeah. felt oh i need to do it and they're sitting there and you need to know do you need to some time by yourself what do you do but let's imagine that's happened yeah and you have referred that person on now to a red mm-hmm. specialist or you've well first of all who should you refer them to is it go to the gp first of all even though so, you're a bit wide the gp is going to say oh, i would pill. i would recommend i mean it depends on the patient situation whether they've come to see i don't I, do they see um do therapy see do your type of therapy see anyone on nhs or is it all private work Let's no, it's all private. Private, yeah. private, fine. Let's go. Um, well, so not all of it, but most of it, especially for uh, massage therapists. Yes, fine. Therapists. So I know obviously everyone's financial situation may be different, but um, if they have, if they are able to self fund, or if they have any private health insurance, I would recommend seeing a sports medicine doctor who kind of looks at everything more holistically and kind of incorporates everything rather than just sending them back to the GP. Mm. Um, unfortunately at the moment with with how that may work, they may have to wait a long time and they may not actually get to see their regular uh, GP. So they may not have that rapport with them. Um, but going to see someone like a sports medicine doctor, they're more likely to have an awareness of these signs and symptoms as well. Whereas the GP may or may not have, have awareness of these signs and symptoms. So I, I would first of all try and get, try and get them into a sports medicine doctor. Um, can also then refer to someone like myself, someone who specializes or works with patients with REDS or REDS. Nutritionists can also be important. It depends on what signs and symptoms you're recognizing. If you recognize that they're getting a lot of, uh, there's a lot of psychological issues going on, then I would initially try to recommend them to go see a sports psychologist or um, a, psycholo- a psychologist initially just to kind of start that ball rolling, um, but make them aware that there would be a kind of an, an MDT situation that would be best for them to manage the situation. So if it's more you're worried about their nutrition, then again, refer them to the nutritionist, dietitian. If it is more uh, they're, they're having these reoccurring injuries and things and, and reoccurring stress fractures, get them into a physio. If you're wanting someone to look at it overall, though, that's where I'd say the, the sports medicine doctor would be the one to go to first because they can then make the appropriate MRI scans to see where bone stress fractures are or are not, um, make the appropriate um, blood um blood test referrals, they're looking at vitamin D levels. So initially a sports doctor, unless you think that the psychological or the nutrition aspect is something that needs to be addressed sooner. Um, I think a lot of this also depends on time as well as who can they get in with sooner as well, unfortunately, at the moment. So if they they can get in with someone, get them in with them first, get the ball rolling and then get everything else in check later on. Um, But in in making that initial first uh, acknowledgement of these signs and symptoms will then help them to kind of put things in place. Uh, but like I say, you can then use if you don't if, if if you want to, you could then use that red cat tool to kind of know what how to kind of manage them if they're just wanting to see yourself. Um, so yeah, excellent. And I guess and this has been said quite a few times whether you're dealing with a, a patient who needs to see a rheumatology mm-hmm. specialist or yeah, a hypermobility yeah, yeah. or whatever it is going to be endometriosis. Once you've got that connection, yeah, with somebody who knows your name and you know their name then that's all you really need. And they yeah. might not be able to help this person. They say, yeah, I know somebody in wherever who can help them. So it's just massage therapists. I said this a few times, should really have quite a big black book by now of, yeah. of names of people who they can send people to female pelvic health specialist, male pelvic yeah. health specialist. And if, and if you don't have anyone locally, like I've, I've seen, I've seen patients remotely, like, although it's not ideal, you obviously want to get people in face to face if possible, but if people live, 
I, I'm in Cheshire, but if someone's in London but wants to have a conversation, we, we can do things virtually. So if you initiate, mm-hmm. and then I could then maybe potentially, I might know someone in London who I could then refer them back to who they could see in person. So if you, even if you can message someone, if you don't, if you, if you really don't have anyone that you know you can refer to, look on social media. Social media is such a great, powerful tool that we could use Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. Try and find someone who you can have a little quick conversation with. Obviously, don't disclose any patient personal details with them about the patient, but just say you've got a person, a patient who you'd like to uh, refer them to or where should you go to next. Just speak out. Don't feel that you have to kind of bottle this all up in your own clinic room. Just make sure that you, you, you're kind of reaching out for um, advice from others, whether it be through social media or whether it just be through a specific referral. If you are obviously doing it through a specific referral, you can use the appropriate chains for that. If you are doing it through social media, then just maybe don't make sure, make sure keep keep patient confidentiality until they are the patient of the other person. Definitely um, good advice. But 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 you can initially reach out to them and just say, what should I do in this situation? And as Gary's pointed out, Gary Benson, founder of the STA, is in listening live. And Gary Benson said, if we don't have the knowledge on where to refer onwards, the STA have a great team who might be your first product call and can signpost you further. So, yeah, this is where it's an advantage. Your professional association, especially if they do a podcast and have got 167 guests, guests with specialities and different things. Just approach your um, personal association, professional representation and, and say, look, I've got this client um, and blah, blah, blah with confidentiality. Who should I send them to? Mm-hmm. Say, oh, Lucy Gilbanks. Just send them <laughs> That's your portal call. So you can do a virtual consultation to start it off. So I'm interested then, have you got, I, I didn't, um, I, I haven't given you a chance to prepare for this, but what I'm interested in now is have you got any examples of patients you've seen or maybe colleagues have seen who didn't realize that they were suffering from red S and then they've been down the channels and they've come out stronger, healthier and better. And mm-hmm. give me maybe, mm-hmm. does anyone come to mind or any? including my, myself um when i had these signs and symptoms and things i you know initially if it had been left it could have been something that kind of stopped me from doing sports and things but actually i was able to then once you kind of address these, this situation and realize it's a situation and make sure that you kind of get like periods and things in check and get the, the physical side of things sorted, get the psychological things side sorted, get the psychosocial things side sorted. I was then able to go on to Oxford University and be like part of the Blues team to to work within the, the boat race team. Um, but had I not established what was going on a little bit earlier on, I may have had to retire from sport. You know, a lot of people within lightweight rowing specifically um, had to stop sport early on because they didn't recognize these symptoms till it was osteoporosis or something more significant that actually wow. they couldn't they couldn't carry on with. Um, so if you identify these things earlier, then yes, you can have a great outcome out afterwards. You can carry on doing your sport. You can excel in your sport. I had a patient, obviously keeping confidentiality, but I had a patient, um, who A, initially didn't realize this problem. Once we then actually addressed the problem and got the right management on board, they were then able to go on and represent their country within their sport, um, nice. able to get the world championships within their sport. But had we not identified it early enough, they may have ended up going down the other route and actually had to stop sport altogether and just stick to kind of no weight bearing sports because of the fact that they were a young athlete with osteoporosis now and they had to monitor what they were doing to reduce the risk of fracture. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no. So I did. Ha- I, I did have a patient who had these signs and symptoms, didn't realise was a problem. It was a long two years of actually getting things sorted. So it was a long time with this person. Um, however, intentional or non-intentional? Unintentional initially, um, yeah. but then yeah, yeah. long term we're able to get this sorted. So there was an, there was intentional changes that we were able to make, but unintentional cause for it uh, to begin with. That this person was then able to go on world championship uh, level. 
So, yeah. so even if you're going through, let's imagine somebody who's had a couple of repeated stress fractures and that's keeping them out of the game. If you address it and you find the, the correct reason that's causing this and you address it with some yeah. time and therapy, then you can come back. That's and it's not, a, like- it's not a long-term, I mean, like, for example, with, with um, amenorrhea and that, if, yeah. if it's treated properly, it can come back. You don't necessarily yeah. lose fertility and everything. Yeah. So it's not a, a, a full-term systemic issue. It, you yeah. can recover if things like this are identified early enough we can we can establish the problem establish the root cause not put a mask over the problem establish the root cause treat the root cause not treating the symptoms making sure Mm -hmm. we're treating the cause and getting that patient back to full fitness and back to their sports you can even though there's a lot going on with reds it's the same as like an acl if, if someone has if someone's ruptured an ACL, it's not that they're never going to play sports again or they're never going to ski again. It's just going to be a long rehab process to actually mm-hmm. get them back to where they were to get full fitness and to get everything sorted out. It, it's the same injury-wise. It's the same illness-wise. We just need to get everything ticking along inside so that from the outside they can perform to the best of their capability. Amazing. Um, so, yeah. And imagine, imagine if you, not you, but imagine if you, the listener, were the humble non-assuming massage therapist who identified this and formed part of that care i mean your reputation and your business is just going to boom you know yeah. and also you're going to start getting referrals from other people in that chain and they go wow i'm going to send my athletes to you because i know that you've got your eyes and ears open and just knowing that you're looking at other things rather than just going through the day-to-day of of, of treating patient one in one out mm. making sure that you're looking at every patient individually if, if you recognize these symptoms in an athlete or recognize them within that like the the, the parents child the, the child and the parents that there they will then also acknowledge you as someone who's looking at them as not just a number on their caseload that day you know you're looking at them holistically and you're looking at how you can better them within sport and not just kind of get them through that week so it's really empowering that we use our position at whatever level you're kind of treating patients at to to better them within their sport and help them long term because if we do if we do leave these and we do kind of let it let it simmer away and then they go off and do other sports and things and and, and we don't we've never identified that with a patient like I say sometimes these patients aren't really aware that it's even a problem but if you let them aware let them know it's a bit of an issue and let them have that opportunity to discuss it with you then they can prevent this from becoming a long-term issue whereas if they do leave like the periods and things then they they may end up struggling with children having children in the future and having fertility problems they may end up having brittle bones when they're very young they may end up pulling out a sport because they've just got reoccurring illnesses because their, their immune system is just so compromised because of years of underfueling but if we identify early enough we can give everyone these tools to, to to stop that long term so it's really not looking at them now it's looking at them in the long term as well amazing and we could have another hour conversation about <laughs> as well as the systemic issues you've got the psychosocial factors of the depression anxiety and yeah, potential suicides yeah. and all sort of things which could... and that's that's where that's where massage therapists it's going to be really important for, for them to be able to have that conversation with you like you said before because they are going to have that cathartic release they probably are going to talk to you about things that they may not talk to other people about um so they may open up about more of those psychological issues that are going on and even if you don't feel prepared to talk to them about them if you're if you identify them as an issue find a, a psychologist or a sports psychologist who works locally who you can refer them to so that they can then take the baton on from you and and, and discuss that further with that patient you don't have to take everything on yourself um it's just it, it, it's as much of an empowerment to recognize these symptoms and refer out and know your own limitation as it is to actually try and help all of these patients because we all not everyone can individually help everyone that's why we have multidisciplinary teams so just make sure that you're referring out if you don't feel comfortable with the psychological psychosocial or physical symptoms any of them refer out speak to someone someone will be able to help them 
brilliant what a soundbite that's going to be that's incredible um i feel empowered so yeah i mean i want to get right let's hear it for the boys i want to have like three minutes um just for the guys because yeah. i mean it's obviously the menstruation like you said yeah. it's a clear indication is there any data on how many guys are unknowingly kind of doing this intentionally or unintentionally well there was there was an overall stat from the um ioc and that was for the last olympics that 70% of all athletes, men and women, had at least one symptom of red S. So 70% at the top level had a symptom of red S. So that was men and women. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, particularly within my studies as well, that I found is that some of the, the men actually had more of the kind of long-term situations going on, the reoccurring stress fractures, the reoccurring illnesses, the kind of compromised immune systems because they didn't have that early warning signal. Um, so often with with men, the, the stat is actually finding that they're getting more of the, the physical and the psychological aspect, the psychological symptoms. Um, the psychosocial is, is the same for both men and women from what I found within my study, but the psychological symptoms, the men I found was, were struggling more. Um, because as well as obviously the physical symptoms, uh, they also felt that they didn't necessarily feel that they could speak out about some of these things. So that's then kind of bringing into the mental health stigma that a lot of men still feel under is that they they feel that girls might talk about periods, might talk about these types of things, might talk about their mental health or how they're feeling that day. But for boys, they kind of need to just get on with it and and, and have a stiff upper lip and don't mm-hmm. cry, don't don't have emotion and things and just get on with things. And actually, that was then causing a lot of emotional burden for a lot of the men that I spoke to, um, a lot of the light rivers that I spoke to, and that they felt quite depressed about the situation because they just didn't know who to turn to. They didn't they didn't have the early warning signal, so they didn't have something that they could kind of break that first initial barrier with uh, to say, I'm struggling with my period, I'm struggling with this. They just didn't have that as an early warning signal. So that's where, again, the massage therapist is going to be really important to have that one-to-one rapport with because they may then actually start opening up to you about some of these symptoms that they may not be able to discuss with other people um so it was more on on the men as well as the physical psychological psychosocial it was more the psychological symptoms that they were suffering with because they didn't have as many of the physical symptoms that came initially and when they did they were often quite progressed on um and they wanted to just try and crack on with it and ignore them um but yeah there's there's such connections going on like because you the big takeaway that was for me was like men mental health and we know mm-hmm. that men mm-hmm. are more susceptible to suicide because yeah. they're not opening up and talking about it and you've just said that because they don't get the early indications for example of ceasing of periods and stuff then they're more likely just to put up with it and mm-hmm. and, and and make even worse the psychosocial mm-hmm. effects of it so and it all ties in because like at therapy expo we're going to have that's why we're having jack coward and ryan smith talking about mental health and um, for men with their um, podcasts and everything we're going to have as you were talking, you mentioned like um, suppressed immune system. And that was mm-hmm. Lucy Williamson from last week talking about the effect, systemic effect of poor nutrition mm-hmm. on the gut microbiome. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's amazing. Um, that's what excites me so much about Therapy Expo and the way we're putting everything together is it's it's all connected. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's all a Venn diagram with all of you wonderfully just working together and the knock-on effects. And that's that's how healthcare has to be. So. Yeah. But I definitely think that I would definitely almost suggest that you probe the men more without being too stereotypically, without being too stereotypical, because they may keep a lot of it to themselves. Mm -hmm. Some of the girls may end up opening up a little bit too as you get talking about different things. Um, It may be easier for a female and 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 a as in the same sex to be to be um treating one another they may feel more comfortable opening um uh, opening up to one to yourself if you're of the same gender they may feel more comfortable of a woman talking to another woman about the period 
Um, but having but being able to have this conversation with patients and breaking that stigma down, the same with if I have a, a male patient, if I start talking to them about it, they may feel uncomfortable initially, but if I make them aware that I'm not uncomfortable talking about it, then it can help hopefully help them to open up a little bit more as well. So even if typically they wouldn't want to speak to me about it, they may end up kind of opening up a little bit more if you start probing the questions to them as well. So don't feel that you can't ask these questions just because you know you're not a bloke and you can't kind of uh, discuss these topics topics with them because they might feel uncomfortable. If you approach the subject with them, it might then give them the tools to then take away and discuss a little bit more or like I say refer on if you don't feel comfortable to, to talk to them about it but if you recognize that there's an issue then flag it up great point really good yeah um david fahetti i'm going to put that as the pronunciation david forgive me if i've mispronounced your last name but um says great to have someone as knowledgeable as lucy on the cast on the cast we're not a show yes we're a show <laughs> on the cast very interesting thank you yes it is it's great thank it's you. been amazing lucy thank you so much um so look at the time so for people who um are interested you're coming to therapy expo or maybe you're thinking should i go to therapy expo what is this therapy expo then um, do come along. Um, Lucy is going to be on day one, which is the 22nd of November, 2023, in the NEC um, in Birmingham, UK. Um, and Lucy is going to be presenting relative energy deficiency in sport, what therapists need to know. Um, if you haven't been to Therapy Expo before, we're talking, I don't know, five, 7,000 people over two days coming in and out. Um, amazing networking, a real good buzz. And the quality of speakers has just gone beyond, beyond, beyond mainly or especially because they're just listening to all associations like sports therapy association gary benson's been part of the advisory team on what sort of speakers what topics need to be and they really are revolutionizing what an expo is all about in that they're putting speakers forward who are, uh, are just putting out evidence-based evidence-informed information as opposed to fads and selling things which is always going to be there but Therapy expert really is hand on heart now. Such a high percentage of it is quality speakers now, um, especially in the STA Update Theatre. So, yeah, Lucy's going to be there, second speaker on day one. And then also, if you miss day one, if you're only going to day two, which is the 23rd of November, then Lucy will also be speaking in Theatre C, which, if I remember rightly, is 3.30. So you've got a double opportunity um, for everything and anything to do with relative energy deficiency in sport. So there we go. We're looking forward to it. It's going to be great seeing you all together. It really is amazing. Um, thank you for the opportunity. Oh, no. Thank you. Thank you. So there we go. Um, we are going to be back next Tuesday. If you listen to the podcast, this is recorded live every Tuesday on the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel. Next Tuesday is a little bit different, actually. Um, we're having a little, I'm sure Therapy Expo will get mentioned, but next week is going to be a panel discussion. It's something which messages were put out there on social media. Um, it's going to be entitled something along the lines of the changing face of qualifications. Who can we trust? Dun, dun, dun. It's something which members often ask about and email about, and it is a problem. What qualifications to do? Is this going to get me a job, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the objective of this debate, which is going to have people from all across the industry, from different disciplines, people involved in education, people are involved in um, looking at the quality of education. And they're all going to come together, hopefully, with me keeping the peace, I hope, um, talking honestly 
in inverted commas, but hopefully we honestly about the current qualification structure, which as we know, particularly in, in sports therapy and sports massage therapy, it's not regulated. People can call themselves whatever they want, whenever they want and do whatever qualification they can offer level six, seven, eight. I'm going to do a level 10 now. They can just make it up as they go along. Okay. So there is a problem out there. Is regulation the answer? That's another topic that might come up as well. It's not like physio, osteo, chiro, where there is regulation and your allied health professionals. It's a bit more of a minefield when you move away from allied health professionals. So they're going to be talking about this, talking about accreditation, awarding organization validity. And it should be really interesting for people who um, want to be part of this debate. So if you want to join that live, then come along to the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel at eight o'clock next Tuesday. Um, which will be the 26th of September plus seven, October the 3rd. That was it. Mm -hmm. My maths is still there. October the 3rd. If you can't make it, then that's fine. Just uh, make sure that you follow us on social media and subscribe to our YouTube and you'll get a notification of when it comes up. That is next week. But for today and tonight, thank you once again, Lucy Gilbanks, for your time. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to shut down the live lounge don't press any buttons if you can, because I just want to say thank you to you afterwards. I'll mm -hmm. shut it down. But thank you, people, who joined us live. If you're in the Facebook group and you weren't able to leave comments, then just to reiterate, I'm putting it in the open group. But you do need to sign that Facebook, click that Facebook link. Otherwise, you won't be able to put comments up there. But people who did join us live, thank you very much for your questions and your comments in there. Um, and uh, we hope you can make it again next week. Um, until then, take care of each other and we'll see you soon. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy.